Hello, Calvary. Welcome back. We are in the middle of a conversation with Pastor Johnny, myself, and Johan Bass as he tells us of growing up in South Africa. We've begun a new series called Stories of Calvary with the hope of getting to know each other better even though we're seeing each other less. If you missed part one of Johan's story, it was last week's episode but here's a sneak peek. Somehow we got to create a series just getting people's stories to each other in the congregation. Stories are the stuff of life. You know, it comes with the kit of being human, you know. I'm Johan Bass. I was born in Mossel Bay, a harbor town um, on the southern tip of Africa. As a young kid, I always wondered why we had to suffer daily indignities. So here you had a situation of growing up in this very uh, racially explosive, violent type of environment. And then you found safe spaces. And so we had a way in which these safe spaces of music making within the home were highly valued. And it gave us a sense of security and a sense of self-esteem. Now, with the heart of gold and the voice of David Attenborough, Johan Bass. We're gonna skip some years here. I wish we had, you know, the rest of the night to just play this live. Uh, we're gonna skip a little bit, because um, I feel like you gave us a really awesome window into just your childhood and growing up. Um, Maybe you can walk us through a little bit of where you went to university, what that experience was like, and then what your life after university was, and then maybe get us to, you have a, we have a colleague that we work with at Calvary that we think is pretty fantastic, and uh, her name is Janet. I think you know <laughs> Janet also. So maybe you can get us uh, from university to Janet. Can you do that? <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. This is our 32nd year of marriage, mm. and we have known each other for 33 years. So without Janet, my story would be totally different. Um, university in South Africa is not a foregone conclusion for people leaving high school. Only the very best students, the few, made it through. So it was one of those sifting through and only the few that could survive made it into university. Um, a little anecdote is uh, helpful here. Um, because the British system does not have, a, like the American system, a kind of um, 
egalitarian opportunity for studying at college or university. The British always maintained that there are few universities and they should be only for the, um, the small uh, minority of people. And how they sifted people was that you had to sharpen the mind, that was the term. To sharpen the mind for university study, you had to study either in the early days, in the Middle Ages, or in the 19th century even, you had to study either Greek or Latin. That sharpened the mind. But later on they said, well, we can, uh, in the colonial period of the 20th century, they said, well, we can have you study a third language. So if you know two languages, then you'll have to study a third language and pass that in order to qualify to go to a university. Or you could study mathematics. So from Greek, Latin, third language, mathematics, all these were opportunities to uh, sharpen the mind. But if you're in a segregated country where the opportunities for choice of school subjects was limited, then what do you do? So we didn't, in our rural town, we didn't have a high school opportunity for a third language. So instead, we only had the opportunity to do mathematics. So here's an interesting fact that although I make my living as a music historian, I never took history in high school because I had the choice of either history or mathematics. And so mathematics to enter oh, college. Yeah, yeah. So that's just okay. a little interesting yeah, anecdote. Yeah. But it's also interesting that because the universities were essentially segregated, you could only enter a historically white university by government permission. So there was no music degree available at the university for people of mixed race. So since I qualified in that ethnic category, I applied to the University of Cape Town, then um, got this government permission. Why did you need government permission? In case you found yourself being an objectionable character on campus, the government could withdraw your permission. So in other words, you were almost forced not to take a political stand against the government. Interestingly enough, I was voted student president of the College of Music, which was the music school, the opera school, and the ballet school, that the, my fellow students, most of them white, uh, voted me in as their president the very year that I was a senior, which was 1976, the very year in which the country erupted in violence in the streets uh, in the major cities because the country dictated that all students, whether they knew Afrikaans or not, had to study Afrikaans as the language of instruction. And of course, that just um, the scales in favor of all the resentment of these segregated schools in 1976, the very year that I graduated from college. And that was also, by the way, the year that my mom, mom had, turned, um, had turned around uh, in a mental illness. Then, fortunately, after a few years in South Africa teaching and uh, going to graduate school, I um, came to the United States in 1982 as I hinted, 
I was very, very strongly aware of social injustice and I was not going to be silent in the United States where I was now studying as a Fulbright Fellow in Indiana. So I spoke out at places of faith, places of conscience, not at any uh, other type of objectionable uh, group of people that I would not have had a, a commonality with. So I appealed to communities of faith and academic communities to enter the anti-apartheid movement which advocated for boycotting all things from South Africa, whether sports, whether music, mm. whether uh, household goods, whether fruits and uh, other kinds of um, commercial things. So this boycott against South Africa was raging during the 80s and I was part of that, uh, advocating against my own government. Mm. That landed me uh, in the in the optics of the South African apartheid government and many, many things um, happened that brought me to their attention. When I arrived at this country at JFK, as I was uh, being processed uh, by the customs officials, remember now, you had only little kiosks and then you enter the public area where people met you. So the kiosk and the public area in 1982 were just adjacent to one another. I saw a man walk up to me and within point blank range, took a small camera out of his pocket, took my picture, turned around and walked away. <laughs> he was a South African agent, a wow. spy. And um, he... I knew he was a spy because many other things that followed. For example, the fact that I was called out of class in Europe um, by the South African authorities. Um, the fact that when I, in 1986, had my passport withheld for renewal, uh, they in uh, the South African consulate next to the orchestra hall on the sixth floor there, uh, this um, vice consul interrogated me for an hour and a half and she laid out all the surveillance information that South African secret agents had gathered only on me as a musician, wow. by the way. Um, so it was clear that they had me in their sights and here was the uh, nasty part of it, my interrogation. She threatened me with imprisonment should I return home. I knew that I spoke and I warned my audiences that I was speaking under, in full knowledge of knowing that I could have imprisonment threats against me, but I didn't think it would happen until it did happen. Um, so my brother who was imprisoned in, for political reasons in South Africa, mm. I knew that th these were not idle threats from a government official uh, threatening me during my interrogation. 1986 was the year that this happened. In fact, it was in June uh, 1986. Now, in August, I met Janet and we started dating. Of 86. Of 86, okay. correct. Uh, we started dating. At that point, um, I was already 30 years old. 
I had been a student in Europe, in Salzburg, Austria, after I got my master's degree in 83, and so 83, 84 in Europe, and then from 84 I returned to this country and worked on my doctorate, and then 86 I met Janet, uh, who was a choir director and, and, um, uh, and administrative assistant at a little church in the town where the university was, where I was doing my doctorate. So I was determined that I wouldn't finish my degree, I would find the job, I would have a house, and then I would be available to consider marriage. Well, <laughs> it was that moment that God just smiled and laughed and said, oh, my son, you are so wrong. Because here he brought this wonderful young woman into my life who uh, was a very... A devout and sincere Christian. She was a musician. She understood uh, the life of a musician. And um, she, a year later, uh, we were married with the entire congregation joining in and contributing to the wedding. I did not even own a bicycle. I borrowed my roommate's bicycle. And here they showered us with their kindness and their gifts of even garden flowers for the wedding. They uh, catered this in a church uh, fellowship hall. Um, all sorts of gifts that this congregation gave because they loved Janet so much. And here I came alongside. It's also interesting that during the year before our um, marriage, I started going to the church where Janet was, since I had not gone there before, I wasn't a regular member or a, even in a regular tender there. But I went to the church, started fellowshipping there, and then I had the idea, I invited all those who had played musical instruments in high school to come together. And so here we were with a fairly large size number of people, about 40 or 50 people, high school kids as well as their parents and so on, but mostly older adults who had not played in many years but had their instruments still in the closet. And I said, listen, we're going to build up what we had lost over the years and we're going to build this um, a little orchestra. So it was mostly a wind ensemble, a wind band. Uh, we'll do this. And I found that we could build up the uh, playing ability. And then on a regular basis, once a month, we would play um, at, at church and this wind ensemble. So fortunately, my presence in the congregation was not one just sitting in the back of the pews, but also contributing to the life of the church. And I was so touched that about 300 people showed up for our wedding. I joked about the fact that my aunt, who's a naturalized Canadian citizen, and her son and my dad, the three of them each represented 100 guests um, at our wedding. But that is how God blessed us starting off our life. And then um, we managed to get uh, first position at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia, where our two daughters, Adele Marie and Elena, were born. And then years later, when I came for my postdoc to Chicago, 
I returned, got tenured at the University of Georgia, and then gave it up to return back to the Midwest. The beautiful thing about that was that we were now an hour away from Janet's parents, and they um, gave my daughters or our daughters an opportunity to see grandparents in the best part of their lives. And then as they declined, our daughters saw that too. And I was so pleased because they had at least this experience of grandparents who um, they had built an attachment with uh, by being back in the Midwest. And God has favored us immensely. Wow, that's that's cool. And so you, I, I remember, or I've heard you know, that you worked in Georgia. Um, and then did you go from, but you said you went from Georgia to an hour away from your in-laws? Before in you Chicago. Came, oh, here. Okay, so they're, yeah. they're only an hour away from Yeah, they're in northwest Indiana in oh, Merrillville. Okay, I was thinking it was no. Ohio for some reason, mm -mm. farther away. Okay. No. So, so you went from there and uh, came to Wheaton. Um, no, I no. came yeah. back to the place where I did my postdoc, which is the Center for Black Music Research at Columbia College, Chicago. Oh, at Columbia. So okay. I spent six years there. And then went to Wheaton College 18 yeah. years, 19 years ago now. Okay, yeah. cool. That was actually, and you just kind of brought this up because the next question I was going to ask you was, um, what has kind of been your focus and field of research throughout your PhD and into your teaching posts? And, and then maybe what brought you to Wheaton College? The quick and <laughs> quick answer for that is I always, sorry. I should I should clarify. No, no. It's always a bad question to ask a doctor. Well, no. what they did their dissertation work on. Yeah. I've heard, but we'll try. Here we go. <laughs> so maybe I made a mistake. I don't know. No, 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 no. No, it, it, it's good because there's always a backstory to the question, and I'm trying to be succinct about this. Yeah. Um, my 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 early work that I did my dissertation on was on a German 20th century composer called Paul Hindemith. He died in 1963, and he had um, been involved for the period 1940 to 53, teaching at Yale University. And during that time period, he took musical instruments from museums particularly the Yale Instrument uh, Collection, and then also the instruments at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And he uh, got his students to learn to play these ancient instruments and then used that to perform ancient music, so music of the Middle Ages unto the 19th, uh, 18th century. So that was my early work. Okay. Subsequent to that, while I was at Georgia, I returned to my secondary area, which is ethnomusicology, which is the study of music of the world or music in social context as an anthropologist would study music. And oh. so um, today I am focused more uh, intensely on music of the African uh, world, whether it's in this country or beyond. So that's the nature oh, wow. of it. Yeah. Okay. Great. And how did you uh, get to uh, Wheaton College? The quick and easy answer is they were 
most persistent. In 2003, I, uh, that was just after 9-11. And if, with the uh, issue of 9-11, much of the work that I was doing at the Center for Black Music Research was actually uh, coordinating international initiatives. So I held um, seminars and f professional development um, workshops for teachers, particularly high school teachers, in this country, in Germany, and in the US Virgin Islands. When 9-11 came, I, I happened to be in Germany giving a workshop there, or seminar, a day-long seminar, and that's when we got word about the uh, Twin Towers. Uh, and then um, the funding, for my program started being redirected by funders towards humanitarian and disaster relief opportunities rather than uh, artistic and social impact uh, endeavors. Mm. Wow. So we closed my uh, international initiatives and during that time of the four offers that came my way, um, Wheaton College was the most persistent. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And how long have you been at Wheaton? Um, since 2003. So oh, that's technique. right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. So 2003. What's something about your day in and day out, like rhythms at Wheaton that make you come alive still? The spark in a student's eye. <laughs> I'm a sucker for seeing insight that is gained as I teach. Um, and I provoke my students to think and think freely and speculate in their thinking. And for me, that's a strategy that many times is a little uncomfortable. But when they realize that I accept every answer because I always think of it as being courageous just to answer. And I accept every answer, which means you've engaged in what we're talking about. For me... That discovery, that, ah, that's what it is. That is the moment of insight that I live for, to see my students' eyes light, light up and discover something new. And so I would talk about BTS and K-pop all, <laughs> all the way through to Bach, Beethoven and Brahms <laughs> and music of Japan and music of Africa and all over. So, At some point, did you have to circle back around and get all the pop music that was banned from your house? Oh, <laughs> listen, very good question. Excellent. Because, uh, because I, uh, I was deprived of the pop music, I went to relatives and I learned all I heard lots of pop music okay. on the radio stations <laughs> from them but it was also interesting that even during uh, college in South Africa where they didn't teach um, jazz as a standard uh, course uh, when we implored our professor to teach us a a, sh a course, a short course on jazz, we felt that we were actually the rebels. We were <laughs> <laughs> doing something subversive. So that, I now teach jazz history. And oh, wow. uh, there was a year 
during my, my post-doc, an entire year that I never listened to any classical music. For the first time in my life, an entire <laughs> year, I never listened to classical music because my backlog in black music was such that I needed to get, come up to speed with pop music, with blues, with jazz, with gospel, all these black music genres that I had to study intensely. And for that year, I just set all my classical music aside. Wow. <laughs> That's so, super interesting. Mm. So what this is just some, some mm. simple questions. Um, we've, we've peppered you with some, some tougher questions, I suppose. Um, but simple questions like what instruments do you play and what, who are some of your, and I'm, I would imagine given the kind of breadth of music in your profession, mm -hmm. what are some of your favorite musical artists, mm -hmm. whether in classical or pop or, mm -hmm. or folk, fine, whatever. Um, so some of your favorite musicians and what instruments do you play? Mm. Um, I, my father, who did not play the piano, made a point that all his children had to at least study the piano. And so um, I managed to do that through my undergrad as my main instrument. Oh, wow. But, the, in but the interesting thing is the year I finished my undergrad degree, I swore off the piano. I said, I will never reach the heights I want to go on my piano. Instead, I had two other instruments. I was uh, extremely uh, proficient on recorders since I was a kid, and I taught my classmates, prepared them for uh, concerts. Uh, so I was teaching my classmates already in grade school. Um, on recorder, and we had a fairly large recorder group uh, that we always uh, performed at school. And then, um, so I did that in at the university. But the other thing was that because my father had managed to secure an oboe for me when I was in eighth grade, I had to travel 300 miles to get for, to lessons on this instrument. So that could only be done during school vacations. So when we went wow. to our grandparents or our relatives in Cape Town, in Cape Town I could yeah. get my lessons okay. uh, with uh, on the oboe. In the city? In the you city. Had to go to the city. Exactly. Yeah. And then um, when I was at the university, then I was the principal oboist for the university orchestra. So the oboe, I put all my efforts behind oboe, and I knew that the oboe would take me places, and so it did. So in fact, during my time in South Africa, from about 1979 to 82, I performed professionally with the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra, um, being the first um, professional oboist of color uh, in that country. Mm. Yeah, so that was it. How did I not tell you to bring your oboe? <laughs> Oh because how did, I, how did I not, how did I forget to do that? I'm at the point oh, where now man. I have to build up my <laughs> chops again. Okay. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Some of your favorite artists. Well, I usually answer that question this way. <laughs> the next one that interests me. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. So you just yeah. you're like always open to new artists. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. By the way, this coming Friday, there's a documentary done on Frank Zappa. 
And um, I, I have to teach about Frank Zappa, so <laughs> clearly I'm going to be watching. So yeah. those are the kind of things, you know, always see music as not just classical music, but music as a creative art that human beings do in an attempt to copy God. Mm. In an attempt to copy God, because when I teach, I always point to my student, point it out to my students that remember all our little attempts at writing songs or attempts at understanding other people's compositions is only for half the story. It has to go beyond that. And the rest of the story is what does it tell us about God, the great creator? For me, that's the issue. So whether it is Alice Cooper or whether it is BTS, as I said, or any other group, the Beatles or whatever, there's a spark of the human creativity that must always point us to God. Yeah, I, um, we're having a guy come do our lessons and carols mm. uh, for Calvary this year. Uh, his name is Robbie Madison. And he just recently did an album called Creation Responds. Mm. And, I, and so he did a little Vimeo video. Uh, a buddy of his, I think, produced it. And just kind of talking about the inspiration for this. And it was just a very, I'm not going to get the quote right, mm. but it was just something along the lines of just music as a just very basic, natural way to like react to God. Mm -hmm. You know, and I just thought like the simplicity of that was so cool. And you really just say just art in general mm. as just art being a just a basic way to react to God. It could be reacting in the beauty and majesty mm -hmm. and love and mercy of God. It could also be in the theodicy, mm. you know, where you're questioned yeah. suffering. And, 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 but just those kind of the human reaction and response to God is something like that. I just thought it was a really great way to think about art in general, but music specifically. And remember, music is the only one of the creative outlets that the Bible really speaks of consistently mm. and speaks about in terms of the new... Jerusalem and the context of that. So we never, never, never should think of music as the domain of professionals or exclusively that for the experts. No, it's our response to God that makes us hum and groan and moan and do whatever mm -hmm. sounds that go in response to God. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, there's one other quote I'll share that was impactful that I read a while back on T. Wright. And again, I'll probably butcher this quote too, but it was something along the lines that art is not meant to be the pretty border around the edges, mm. but a window into life itself. Right. And that right. was just a very powerful quote. I I've always remembered that. Incidentally, our N.T. Wright used to play the trombone. Oh, is that Just right? FYI. <laughs> <laughs> Wisdom nice. comes to the trombone. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, you have uh, shared quite a bit with us. I've got a few more questions, but you've gotten us through birth, birth location, time, parents, childhood, university, uh, your professional career. I mean, you've shared quite a bit and i'm not done yet but okay. i just feel like i just want to say thank you yeah. <laughs> yes. so thank you for yes. getting us 
just some giving us some exposure to who you are, Johan. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm thinking of Calvary now, right? So you're uh, you're many things, but in this moment for me, you're a brother in Christ, and so we share the same church. Um, we love the same people. And so maybe you could just give us a little bit of just how you came to Calvary, you and Janet, and um, yeah, just a little bit of kind of the ways you've been connected and involved throughout the years, and um, yeah, just what's your Calvary journey been like? Mm -hmm. Well, we've been at Calvary Memorial Church for over 20 years, and we came by attending a, a series of video discussions um, that was geared towards parents of young children. <laughs> so um, the child's couple uh, were the ones that led this and we were attending other churches in the city, but because of the proximity and the closeness um, uh, of the circle of people in that uh, series that was done during the week, we found ourselves coming to the church because of the children's ministry. Oh, nice. Both girls went through there, and so, of course, now uh, we continue. And, of course, also we've been very active wherever we've been in our previous church uh, locales. Janet, always either choir director or administrative assistant or both and so on. So that's the context. And yes. your girls up then at Calvary? Where were they yeah. born? Okay, they were uh, born in Chicago? No, they, they were born in Athens, Georgia. Okay. And they came when they were seven and five, Got respectively. It. Okay. So that was the age. Yeah, so my mm -hmm. first year here at Calvary, I was the youth pastor, one of the youth pastors, and Elena was a senior. Oh, I so see. So it was her last year of high school. Mm. And so one of my first memories, uh, we are now living on 600 Wesley 607 but we used to live on 900 Wesley uh, the mm. first house we moved into we were renting and I'll never forget as like one of the first or second Sunday schools it was um uh Elena and Grace Stouffer and Catherine Berkey mm -hmm. the three of them I had was not familiar with Johnny's because I kind of grew up in the northwest suburbs okay so I wasn't familiar with Gene and Jude's and Johnny's and that yes. whole scene um, and so they were like, it was like the very first time they're like, we had, you have to come to Johnny's. We have to get a beef. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I don't remember what happened. It was like immediately after church is over, I think Elena drove and like the three of them drove and then we followed them there, uh. got beefs and then went back to our place on 900 Wesley and had lunch. And, uh, so that was one of my, our first experiences. Oh, that's Here's good. The youth I didn't pastor. know about that Yeah, story. <laughs> I totally remember that. It was mm. like to them, they're like, our youth pastor's Johnny. They've got, he's got to go to Johnny's. Yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. And so it was, it was really sweet. I had to, yeah, I love that memory. So That's beautiful. Thank yeah. you for sharing it. Yeah. I didn't know about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Mm, 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 mm. Did you just share your address? On your uh, yeah, 607 Wesley. You're <laughs> welcome. No, you're not welcome to come over any time, I guess. No, sure. You're welcome to come over any time after COVID. You know that we actually, for 95, 96, we lived on the same block just two streets over on Clarence. Oh, is that right? 600 block of Clarence, yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, we should cool. paint the picture. We're in Johnny's living room. We are. Which is newly renovated. Yes, oh. we, we uh, are in the middle of a rehab. <laughs> and I'll still say still in the middle, but 
there's some decent spaces. Still. Oh, totally. <laughs> Thinking about your childhood and experiences in South Africa um, with apartheid, mm-hmm. and kind of as your, I mean, it's interesting to connect to like the firstborn of you, mm-hmm. kind of connected to that need to be an advocate, mm-hmm. um, both by the home scene, but that's all the socio political scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then coming here, so then kind of developing this kind of anti-apartheid uh, voice, mm-hmm. both in South Africa and mm. the States. Mm. Um, and I know there's so many more, there's actually other stories you shared with us at that lunch I referred to that mm. we don't have to bring up now. But I, I mean, so there's so much more in that process. But then kind of coming here to the United States of America with such a racialized history and, and present experience, what was your experience and has been your experience here in the United States going from an apartheid country um, and to some of the racial racialized issues here in the United States? Hmm. Um, two quick responses. Number one, the psychological relaxation, the psychological liberation the psychological freedom of walking in, being accepted, being freed from this awareness of your place in the society. That is enormous. Just the mere fact that there is no such thing as... um, anybody who can insist by weight of law on your difference and demean you. That psychological uh, liberation is not to be taken for granted. Mm. And so I will always remain thankful to the civil rights movement for bringing that into the society. That's my first response. My second response is, Unless we look at Christ, the perfecter and pioneer of our faith, and truly take him seriously, we run the risk of defaming the liberating gospel of Christ. Unless we take him seriously, and I'm afraid that so often we have found ourselves being cultural Christians rather than radical followers of Christ. Because if we don't do that, we are going to be subjected to our debased nature. Our debased nature will always want to draw us away from the cross. It will always want to put the other person down. It will always blame the other person and point fingers and say this, that, and the next thing and say hateful things about the other person. That is not the radical follower of Christ who has that position. And we've got to be cautious that we take Christ's claims seriously 
unless we take them seriously, we will fall into the trap where our children will see our hypocrisy. They will see our pretend Christianity that, yes, the Bible might say that by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another and yet we spout hatred to one another. That kind of tendency is one of the most pernicious things of Satan's attack or our human nature taking over where we need to be daily sanctified to become more like Christ. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's, those are great words. Thanks for, for sharing that. We have one last question that I um, warned you of uh, ahead of time as we kind of come to a close here. Uh, as for those listeners, as you're hearing, this is, is now the season of Advent as you're listening. And so we, throughout this month, and we interview people for our uh, Stories of Calvary miniseries, are wanting to ask them during the season of Advent a specific question of the season of Advent is really shaped by this idea of waiting and longing uh, for the coming of Jesus. Obviously, um, as we go back and reflect on Advent, it's Israel waiting for their Messiah. Um, And as we kind of in our situation now look for that Messiah Jesus who came to return, um, and, but this whole season of Advent is just shaped by the sense of longing and the candles we light, shaped by longing. Um, and so I wanted just to ask you where you have seen maybe one specific story in your life where God really had you waiting and kind of what did that teach you about God and his character and his nature? And mm-hmm. So yeah, if you'd share that with us. This is an easy answer because delayed gratification is at the heart of waiting. (laughs) And so often we overlook this as a valuable discipline that we should always exercise with our children and with ourselves and with uh, whoever we can influence. So delayed gratification. And for me, the story of delayed gratification was always walking past a picture of my aunt who in the 1960s left South Africa and went to Canada and became a naturalized citizen. She was the one who came for my wedding, I will remind you of. Yes. And whenever I walked past this picture of her in our living room, I was always reminded that if she could accomplish this escape, this opportunity beyond the the reality of my living, uh, then I should have that as a goal. And so in our church, we had the Ten Commandments read every time. And as it was read in Afrikaans, I would translate this into English spontaneously. And I would always emphasize in my mind, honor your father and mother so that it might go well with you in the land that the Lord your God will give you. Hmm. 
And for me, that was the delayed gratification. Ah. I will not be in this land forever. Mm. And that was a powerful way of focusing my anticipation. And so that's many decades long anticipation um, makes me realize that in the same way that I now live that anticipation in a foreign country that I had dreamt of as a child is analogous to the time after Christ's coming. So we're in that first coming and the second coming time. And so I am reminded every day, this is a time of anticipating Christ's coming. But it is one of those earth-shattering ideas that the second person of the Trinity is actually God himself, the creator, who comes in the shape and form of a human being, a little infant. To me, that still blows my mind. Yeah. And someday that yeah. mystery will be known. But until that time, I am just grateful for that experience of knowing that we're in this in-between time. Yeah, thanks for, for sharing that, Johan. Yeah, you took, you took something so, like a moment in time and the mystery of the cosmos, and you put them right next to each other, and I'm tracking. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well done. <laughs> That's you. awesome. Well, this brings our episode, uh, current episode, to uh, a close. And uh, again, Johan, I just want to say thank you so much, genuinely, uh, for taking your, this time to just sit down and share with us and um, really uh, just super, feel super privileged to sit and have this conversation. So I'm really thankful for it. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And we love you guys and miss you guys and just continue to encourage you to, to persevere on. This is our story. This is our song. We're telling it slowly. All of love. All the same. What is the